Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we've got a great program this week. Of course, I say that every week, but I really do believe it. And this being the beginning of December, looking forward to the birth of Christ, the celebration of his birth at Christmas time. We'll also be talking about Hanukkah today. We're going to start that series. Paul Scharf, a missionary, a church ministries missionary with Friends of Israel, will come and talk to us about Hanukkah in the Bible, why it's important to Christians, or at least it should be important to Christians. And today we're going to remember the death of a friend of the DeYoung family. The chairman of the Temple Mount Faithful Movement, Gershon Solomon, passed away last Wednesday at the age of 87. Gershon Solomon was a true friend with my father. In fact, our first video that we did in 1991, Ready to Rebuild, Gershon Solomon was trying to get the cornerstone of the temple up onto the Temple Mount. Today, you're going to hear an interview between two great men, in my opinion, Gershon Solomon and Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, both who have passed away. We also have Mike Gendron on the program today. He's going to talk to us about a couple very interesting topics. Rick will be with Mike later on in the program. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series will start a series in the month of December pertaining to the birth of Jesus Christ. How in Bible prophecy, it is so very important that all of the prophecies pertaining to the first coming of Christ leads us to a confidence of his second coming. Well, our regular broadcast partners are here today, so we're going to get ready, Rick. Let's go right to Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert on geopolitical affairs. He is an analyst. He's an author. More information can be found out about him on KenTimmerman.com. He joins us from vacation today, Ken. Thank you so much for doing that. Well, Rick, it is always a pleasure to be with you, even when I'm on vacation. <laughs> well, great. Well, this week we're going to talk about three countries, three countries that we talk about quite often, China, Iran, and Russia. Uh, these are countries that are constantly in the news, and we're going to start with China. There is protest taking place in China right now, reaching a level that hasn't been seen in quite some time now. Can you tell us what's going on on the ground? Well, pretty dramatic video that we've been seeing on television, national television, has been commented on at the State Department. You've seen these riot troops dressed in white COVID protection gear, uh, essentially trying to lock down gigantic cities of 20 million people, Guangzhou and, and elsewhere. And China's zero COVID policy is clearly a failure. It is uh, hurting their economy and really testing the limits of the patience of the Chinese people. We saw a couple of weeks ago that effort to lock down the Foxconn factory. This is the largest, uh, one of the largest factories in the world where they make the latest iPhone. And, uh, you know, that didn't work very well. The workers were fleeing the Chinese government ages trying to seal them in. And then last week, there was an apartment house in Urumqi, which is the capital of East Turkestan, that uh, Muslim province in northwestern China that the Chinese communist government uh, annexed in 1949 and has tried to suppress any form of dissent there. They had an apartment fire there where they had locked in the people. They weld the doors shut. I mean, it's really incredible what they do, Rick. And uh, at least 10 people died when the fire broke out inside. And of course, they couldn't get out. They couldn't get out. Uh, so the Chinese Communist Party is being challenged, I think, in ways that we have not seen since 1989. Unfortunately, our State Department is just poo-pooing the whole thing. 
Well, the Chinese Communist Party and President Xi have been not on this program, but in some areas have been lauded for their government control of this pandemic situation. But that narrative is being destroyed, isn't it? I, I think it is, Rick. And, and they've had real problems. Uh, first, let's not forget this uh, virus uh, came from communist China. It probably originated in a lab, despite what Dr. Fauci has tried to say for, for the past two and a half years. People are now pretty convinced that that is what happened. And the Chinese wanted to make sure they could have a trade agreement with Donald Trump that they signed on January 15th, 2020 in Washington before they allowed word to escape China that they had a problem. So they kept the borders open. They kept people flying out of Wuhan to the United States up until the end of January when millions of them had actually gone to the U.S. and to Europe, spreading the virus worldwide. So China, in the beginning, knew they had a problem. They did not want to keep it within their borders because then it would be their problem. So they spread it around the world. Once that happened, it was the world's problem. But now China is trying to show that they are more virtuous and more better organized than the rest of us with these enormous draconian lockdowns. They claim only 30,000 Chinese have died from COVID since the beginning. It's kind of hard to believe. It certainly is. Well, we'll move on from China and that situation and those protests there to protests that are continuing in Iran. And there's been more stories of some heartbreaking stories of crackdowns on protesters in Iran. And maybe just maybe the Biden administration is realizing that we are not going to do a nuclear deal with Iran because of these protests. Well, and it's not just because of the protests, but they are real and they are nationwide. Uh, we saw with this uh, recent victory of the U.S. soccer team against Iran, this 1-0 victory, the Iranian team, when it got home, they were in big trouble. And it wasn't because they lost the game. It was because earlier in the World Cup, they refused to sing their regime's anthem. And, and I've been mm. very careful in talking about this. I was interviewed by a reporter at the New York Post and uh, about this. He said, well, what's going to happen to these players when they get home and they've lost? And I said, it doesn't matter whether they win or lose. They're not going to be punished because they lost a game. They're going to be punished because they refused to sing the regime's anthem. That was the insult uh, that they committed. Now, Iran has a national anthem. And I told her the reporter that it's called Marzipur Gohar. It means our beautiful land. And yet. Uh, he still continued to refer to the regime's anthem as the national anthem. It is not. The Iranian people understand this. The soccer players certainly understand this. And guess what? The regime, above all, understands that they have their anthem. And these people, these soccer players, refuse to acknowledge it. That was their real crime. And that's why these protests are spreading even more now. Well, can some people worry Israel, for example, is very concerned that maybe Iran starts to try to distract attention from their problems at home and goes after Israel. But that might extend to even other parts of the Western world. Well, they are uh, sending more weapons to Russia, for example, to use against Ukraine. There are reports this week that uh, they're sending up to a thousand of these uh, kamikaze, these smaller kamikaze drones to Russia because the Russians are running low on supplies. And there is always the possibility that the Iranians strike out elsewhere. Uh, there are reports this week in the media, but that I've been following, not in the media for many, many weeks now, of Iranian hit teams and snatch teams in Canada and the United States on the lookout for 
uh, Iranian dissidents and people who support the freedom of the Iranian people. You know, uh, the Iranians actually targeted me twice over the past two years. Uh, once I was informed by the FBI in what they call a, a duty to warn because I'm a U.S. citizen. Uh, and the second time was when they tried to lure me to a conference in Zurich, Switzerland, which the Israeli authorities revealed was actually an attempt to kidnap advocates of the freedom movement in Iran. Well, Ken, uh, we appreciate the fact that you are staying safe. And I do know that you do have an extensive history. So I appreciate uh, you being able to comment on that. And that gives you an extra sense of authority for our listeners here. Well, you mentioned Russia. The war in Russia continues to not necessarily go well for Putin, but it does seem like he is maybe open to talks. But if he's open to talks for peace, he demands that the annexation be recognized before those talks begin. Well, that's right, Rick. But, you know, Putin has never uh, deviated from his original demands. His original demands, uh, which we've discussed on the show, is that uh, Ukraine be neutralized, that the United States and NATO do not expand eastward through Ukraine so they have a common border with Russia. And uh, he would really like the West to recognize the annexation of eastern Ukraine, which he announced a couple of months ago. And so far, those things are not really on the table. But you had a meeting this week at the White House between the French President Macron, who has been in constant touch with Putin. They call each other regularly. Macron is trying to set himself up as an intermediary between Putin and the NATO allies. So Macron was in the White House uh, with Biden, and they actually uh, discussed this possibility of peace talks. And uh, I'm sure that Macron is going to take back the message from President Biden that the West is now ready to discuss with him. And Putin has already said, he's already said publicly, well, that's great. I'm always willing to talk as long as you recognize the annexation of Eastern uh, Ukraine. So this is really a lot of uh, public relations hoopla, but not a big shift in Russian policy and no shift in U.S. policy either. And then finally, President Zelensky from Ukraine is cracking down on all types of Russian resistance. And one of those would be inside the uh, Orthodox Church, which has ties to Moscow. It, it does. But the, there are two Orthodox churches uh, in Ukraine. There's the uh, church which does have these ties to Moscow. They claim that they severed their ties to the Moscow Patriarchate uh, uh, last year. But obviously, the Ukrainian authorities don't think so. So they have been raiding that church. Uh, it's called the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and its monasteries around the country as if they were strongholds of Russian intelligence. There is a kind of native Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which has no ties to Moscow whatsoever. So they are trying to favor their own version of the Orthodox Church. And Rick, you know, this rivalry between the Ukraine, Ukrainian Church and the Russian Church goes back many, many centuries. It's one of the things the Ukrainians hold up to prove that they are really a distinct, a very dis distinct culture from the Russians, both uh, in terms of language, in terms of history, and even in terms of the church. So many facets to all these stories taking place in the world. We appreciate you keeping us informed, even while on vacation, Ken. Go ahead and enjoy the rest of your vacation now, and thank you for doing what you do, Ken. Well, uh, thank you, Rick. It's, uh, as I say, it's always a blessing to be with you. And yep, now we're going to lunch. Ken Timmerman always keeps us updated on geopolitical issues. 
We're going to take a break, and when we come back, our Mideast News Update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The United States soccer team defeated Iran 1-0 on Tuesday, advancing to the knockout stage of the World Cup. But a shadow hangs over the games, held in the small Middle Eastern country of Qatar. Todd Nettleton with the Voice of the Martyrs USA says Qatar's economy is powered by immigrant workers. They built stadiums and hotels for the tournament, often in brutal conditions. Qatari Christians face persecution from both their families and the government. Pray they remain bold in their faith. And daily Russian bombings in Ukraine threaten Europe with another wave of refugees. More than 50 percent of the national power grid remains offline and winter is settling in. As hundreds of people move from east to west, archaic infrastructure threatens to collapse. In partnership with Child Evangelism Fellowship, local churches give gospel backpacks to kids in need. Help the hope of Christ shine brightly in Ukraine by connecting with CEF at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, we have Dave Dolan with us right now. He is a correspondent. He's a journalist. He's an author, a good friend of the program, and he covers the Middle East for us. Dave, thank you for joining us. Glad to do it, Rick. Well, Dave, last week, the big story was the terror attacks. This week, it seems one of the big stories coming into this week was Israel's response to those terror attacks. Yes, there's been a lot of activity, Rick. The main headline is the head of Islamic Jihad brigades in Janine. That, of course, is the northern Sumerian Arab city that's been a hotbed of activity over the past year, actually. And several of the terrorists that have been caught uh, emanated from there. And they still don't know exactly who uh, carried out last week's uh, twin bombings. But Islamic Jihad is suspected of being behind that. The commander uh, and a deputy commander got into a firefight with IDF soldiers. They were in the area because two weapons caches had been discovered, Islamic Jihad factories, basically, and laboratories uh, making pipe bombs and all sorts of explosives. Probably some of the, the two bombs that exploded last week came from up there. There was a firefight and they were killed in the middle of the week. And now Israel's on alert for possible retaliation from Islamic Jihad from the Gaza Strip. But news reports say the Hamas movement that rules the Gaza Strip is not in favor of that at this time. So they may quash it. And meanwhile, Rick, the U.N. announced that it had discovered a tunnel underneath one of its schools that it runs in the Gaza Strip, uh, the United Nations Relief Agency, as it's called. 
They condemned that. The U.N. did very strongly and said, you know, don't put uh, weapons and soldiers underneath our schools. Basically, I'm summarizing what they said. But uh, so that that's some news there, too. Well, dealing with terror attacks and dealing with the United Nations is something that the prime minister of Israel has to do. We know recently Benjamin Netanyahu, his party was elected, which means he gets the chance to form a government. Do you have an update on how that is going? Yes, there was important news Thursday evening, Rick. Netanyahu's office announced that they had signed a coalition deal with Bazalel Smotrich's uh, National Zionist Party and uh, that he would become the finance minister in the new government. I mentioned before that uh, he had wanted to become the defense minister, but the U.S. objected to that, and Netanyahu said, I just can't do that. So he's been given the finance post. And two other ministries will come out of uh, the Religious Zionist Party. I call it the National. It's the Religious Zionist Party. Uh, They will take over the Aliyah and Absorption Ministry, the ministry responsible for Jews immigrating to Israel and being settled in the country. That's going to be very controversial because um, they are against non-Orthodox Jews essentially moving to Israel. They want to change the law of return that allows anybody with a Jewish grandfather or grandmother to move to Israel. They want to drop that. That was Hitler's standard for judging who a Jew was, and so the the state adopted it in 48. And they're going to be given a seat in the defense ministry that will control the communities in Judea and Samaria, Hmm. the settlements, as they're called. That's something they've wanted very, very much, and uh, that's going to be an interesting development. Well, David, I'd like to ask an opinion question here, because if you look at it, at one time, I guess Netanyahu and the Likud party would have been the right, maybe the far right, I don't know how you judge these things, Uh, But now there is a party, and it's a pretty popular party with a lot of seats in the Knesset that is to the right of him, which kind of brings him into the center and maybe gives him some more flexibility in governing. He made that very clear this week, Rick, that he will govern from the center, basically. He said, I remain the prime minister. I have the final say. This was in a podcast interview he did earlier in the week. And he said, we won't be changing the policies concerning uh, the gay movements and their parade and, uh, you know, these sorts of social issues that the religious Zionist party would like to to amend. And one of their leaders said this week they will work to amend uh, the holding of a parade in Jerusalem, for instance, a gay rights parade, that sort of thing. So um, Netanyahu is making clear that he will make the final decisions. And uh, what will be interesting to see is, will that create tensions? Well, it definitely will create tensions in his coalition, but will the religious Zionist party threaten to leave at a certain point if they don't get a lot of what they want and what they campaigned on, you know, so, but the Likud is still a right-wing party. They still have uh, quite a few religious voters there as well. So, you know, they're basically on the same page, but Netanyahu is, of course, a world statesman and a world leader, and uh, he knows that uh, the country can't go too far in any uh, left or right-wing direction without it creating a lot of problems, especially with Israel's uh, vital allies, especially with the U.S. that conducted joint air exercises over the Mediterranean with the IDF this week, long-range uh, practices of 
flying long range, which, of course, brings Iran to mind. Well, Dave, one of the qualities of being a good politician, I guess, is to be able to juggle a lot of balls. And it certainly seems like he can keep a lot of things going. He's been prime minister. He's got so much experience in the past. And maybe this time that experience is certainly going to come in handy to face all the problems that Israel has. Well, somebody else that seems to be learning how to be a politician is Ben Gavir. You mentioned it before, and he was a quote-unquote far-right conservative firebrand really for a good while. But now it seems like he's easing his stance on certain things. One of those things is questions on changing the Temple Mount status quo. Yes, he's very much interested in that topic, and uh, he would like to see a Jewish temple rebuilt. He's made that clear over the years many, many times. But his anti-Arab statements, uh, especially his call for the expulsion of all Israeli Arabs from the country, he's dropped that, certainly. And by the way, he was invited to a reception in Tel Aviv Thursday evening by the United Arab Emirates that Mm. made peace with Israel several years ago, and he went. He shook the hand of the ambassador. So he's obviously trying to be a little bit more centrist in his views, but they do want to see some of the rules changed on the Temple Mount. His party uh, announced that they will act to end the racist policy that discriminates against Jews praying on the Temple Mount. That's a quote from one of them. They can now pray up to four hours a day five days a week. No prayer, Jewish prayers allowed on um, Friday, the Muslim holy day, or Saturday, the Jewish holy day. They want to expand that to six days and expand the hours. We'll see if any of that happens, but Ben Gavir has indicated that he will go up as a minister, national security minister, to the Temple Mount. He will visit, and there is concern that that will spark what Ariel Sharon's September 2000 visit did, which was the second Palestinian uprising. In other words, this would be the excuse that Islamic Jihad, Iran, Mm -hmm. uh, Hezbollah, uh, Hamas, that they need to really uh, go back to war against Israel. So we'll see what happens there. But going to be interesting following this new government. It looks like it's pretty solid now, and it should be put in place probably within the next week. Well, David, time is short, and uh, just have one more question. We brought up the Temple Mount, and as you kind of said, and we've covered it on this program over the years, things are kind of shifting just a little bit in Israel, or sometimes more rapidly than others, towards people being okay with the idea of rebuilding a temple. Now, of course, you and I know that there will be a temple standing during the tribulation period, but that idea, people didn't necessarily see it coming to fruition, but it does seem like it certainly is more and more possible every day. The last question I wanted to ask you, one of the groups that for the last 30 to 40 years has been looking at the Temple Mountain ever since 1967 when Israel took and reunified the city of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount Faithful. And the leader of that group, Gershon Solomon, passed away last week. He's somebody that we've had contact with. He was a man before his time as far as the rebuilding of the temple, wasn't he? He was a strong advocate for that. Uh, Like you say, all those years he was in the army when uh, the Temple Mount was captured by the IDF in 1967. Then he founded this, uh, he called it a revival movement. He was a member of the Jerusalem City Council. I interviewed him several times when I was working with CBS radio. And uh, yes, he very strongly believed in rebuilding a temple. 
up on the Temple Mount, and he felt it was a mistake for Moshe Dayan, the then defense minister, to have handed it back over to full, basically full Islamic control. But he, 87 years old, uh, he was loved and hated, depending on your views on some of his positions. But uh, definitely, as you know, you've, you've met him, and I heard him speak several times. Definitely a very colorful figure uh, in Israel, and uh, until his death, an advocate for rebuilding a temple. Oh, David, I know you feel the same way. I feel like since uh, the establishment of the state of Israel, we, we have been watching prophecy being fulfilled, and it continues to be so, and we continue to understand and know these personalities, and he was certainly one of the personalities. Well, thank you so much for your update this week, David, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. You're welcome, Rick. God bless. We're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today, but when we return, we will have more. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we've been looking at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we're going to start off this half hour with an interview that Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father, and his good friend, Gershon Solomon, did way back in 2016. This is something that uh, we feel like we're honoring both of these men, don't we? That's right, Jimmy. We're certainly honoring both of these men. Gershon Solomon was certainly instrumental in being part of the Temple Mount faithful and very excited to rebuild the temple, which we know is going to happen in the future. We sure do. And I really believe that this is a part of the history of God's plan of using different men to accomplish his will. And it was Dad and Gershon that really brought to light the rebuilding of a temple that will stand during the tribulation period. Here's Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Gershon Solomon. One of the men that was involved in going up onto the Temple Mount June 7, 1967, along with all the Israeli Defense Force paratroopers, General Uzi Narkis, who was leading the attack on the old city of Jerusalem up onto the Temple Mount with these paratroopers, was a man named Gershon Solomon. He was a commander of one of the units up in the Golan Heights. He had come into Jerusalem. He'd been injured there in the Golan Heights. I'll find out about that in a moment, but Gershon was able to get up onto the Temple Mount June 7, 1967. That must have been some experience, Gershon. That was amazing, was it not? Yeah, this was the biggest experience in my life, actually in the life of my people, Israel. 
the liberation of the Temple Mount, the location of the first and the second temple, and uh, the third temple soon to be rebuilt, was the biggest day in the life of my people, Israel. We passed great days, very great, in the history of more than 4,000 years. But this was the greatest, because after 2,000 years of destruction, after 2,000 years of a terrible exile, thanks to the God of Israel, we came back to the land, and Jerusalem is again our capital. And in 1967, that was no doubt a godly war, we returned to the place which is the heart and the soul of the Jewish people, the location of the temple. Hundred generations in the exile could dream and pray and desire to be instead of us on this place. God gave to our generation this great privilege and personally me. And I consider it as a special um, uh, decision of God that he brought me to the Temple Mount in the day of the liberation of the Temple Mount after I was injured on the Golan Heights a short time before the Six Days War. And I was injured terribly. God saved my life together with his angels that appeared in the field of battle and gave me back my life. And after one year in the hospital, he gave me the biggest privilege to go up to the Temple Mount with a unit of paratroops and to be um, a witness to this great moment that could happen and happen just one in history. I will never forget this day. You know, when I was injured on the field of battle and God saved my life and appeared in the field of battle as a promise, I swore that if he will give me back my life, my life will be dedicated to build this house and to fulfill the Jewish dream of 2,000 years. And here he returned me to the Temple Mount, brought me to this place that I never had the privilege to be there, like my people, because foreigners that occupy the land don't allow the Jews to go to the most holy place the Temple Mount, and on this great moment, I stood inside what is today called the Dome of the Rock that the Muslims built after they occupied Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And I stood in the front of the Holy Rock that was located in the middle of the Holy of Holies and survived until today most holy place of all the world. And I must tell you, Jimmy, when I stood there, I felt again the presence of God. A very important day, of course, in not only your life, but the life of the Jewish people when they reunited the city of Jerusalem. Now, you mentioned you went inside the Dome of the Rock. General Uzi Narkis had led those paratroopers up to uh, take back the Temple Mount after some 2,000 years. But along with him was a general-grade chaplain. He had the rank of general. He went into 
uh, the Dome of the Rock as well. I guess you were there. You were two men who knew each other and good friends and ultimately would go to the location of the Ark of the Covenant underneath the Dome of the Rock. But as I understand it, General Shlomo Gorin was there in that Dome of the Rock, had dynamite in his hand. He was ready to blow that Dome of the Rock off the face of the earth and start to build the temple. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And I will not forget the moment that he blew with a shofar inside the Dome of the Rock. And I tell you, it was the first time that a shofar was blown again on this most holy place. And he, yes, he suggested to General Narkis that commanded the forces on the Temple Mount to blow up the, the mosque and the Dome of the Rock, which were uh, located on the location of the Temple, and were a result of Arab occupation of the land of Israel, Jerusalem, and the Temple Mount. And they built like they did all over the world. They built on a, on a holy place, the most holy place of another nation, of the Jewish people, after they occupied the Temple Mount. They did it also in Constantinople, on, on a church, and they did it in India, on a holy place for the Indians and other places. And here, as I say, this was a godly moment, a godly world. And I know, and I feel it in all my bones, that it was not an accident, just an historical accident that God brought us to the Temple Mount in 1967. He brought us to this place just to immediately rebuild the third temple and renew the worship to the God of Israel on this place. Unfortunately, we missed this moment. You know, when we stood inside the Dome of the Rock with tears in our eyes, no tears of sorrow, but tears of joy, uh, we did not believe that, um, that a short time after the liberation of the Temple Mount from Arab occupation, a long occupation, the Defense Minister of Israel, Moshe Dayan, you know, called back the Arabs that ran away from the Temple Mount after they fought from the Temple Mount and against the Israeli forces. They ran away. They were sure that the history of Arab occupation on the Temple Mount is finished. And uh, uh, I would say a moment of weakness of Moshe Dayan, fear from maybe Islam occupation all over the world, maybe uh, also by the United Nations, and he called them back and allowed them to continue their pagan uh, worship, Islamic pagan worship, on the most holy place of the Jewish people of all the world. And I tell you, Jimmy, we missed the greatest moment in our history to rebuild the temple. There's been work going on, because really, you did not have the priests, you did not have the implements. Over these many years that has been since Jerusalem Day 1967, some 49 years, 
The preparations have been made to put a temple up on the Temple Mount on that sacred spot. And one day, and I believe in the near future, would you not agree that there will be a temple up there with all the preparations done now to put it up? You are absolutely right. The time is short, I tell you, Jimmy. You know, God decided again and again in prophecy, before the destruction and after the destruction, that the temple will be rebuilt in the end times. We are living now in the end times, and my uh, movement that God anointed to build the temple and to re-liberate the Temple Mount, the sovereignty still belongs to Israel, but as you said, the Arab Waqf um, handled the Temple Mount, but time is short, and, I, and we feel it in Israel very soon. It can be tomorrow morning, it can be next year, it can be next month. The temple will be rebuilt because no power in the world, sure not an Islamic power, can stop the march of the God of Israel back to his holy mountain, back to his holy house, from where he will reign all over the world and bring the end-time plans that he prophesied to us in the past, in prophecy, to bring them to pass in our lifetime. Remember what I tell you today. We shall be witnesses to the rebuilding of the third temple in our lifetime. Gershon, may I just say thank you so very much for sharing. I just let you talk because I just wanted our people to hear what you had to say. Nobody that I know other than you experienced that privilege and opportunity of going on to the Temple Mount June 7, 1967, the liberation of this sacred holy spot. And I'm sure your dedication over these last almost 50 years has made preparation for that next temple to go up. Thank you so very much, my dear friend, for all of your work, for your activities as it relates to the next temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And thank you for being a friend to us and giving us this opportunity to talk with you. Thank you, my dear friend. Blessings to the American people that stand in these special days with Israel so closely, so strongly. Thank you very much. We love you. The God of Israel loves you. God bless you. Well, Gershon Solomon certainly was a friend of our ministry and our family. Well, this week, we're starting the month of December, the time of the season, the time of Christmas, and it's also the time of the Jewish holiday of the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah. And we thought we would get a head start on it this year, talking about Hanukkah and why it's important. And our good friend, Paul Scharf, church ministries representative with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, serving in the Midwest. He's coming to the program today. Paul, welcome to the program again. Thank you, Jimmy. It's great to be back with you. Paul, we've covered a lot during the Jewish holidays. You have some very important information to help us to understand why these events are important to us. Why do Christians know so little about Hanukkah? Oh, Jimmy, you know, it's interesting. Someone once told me, and I believe it very much to be the truth, that in our sector of the Christian world, thinking of us as, you know, as dispensationalists, as strong conservatives in our particular sphere, often our weakest area of knowledge is church history, 
compared to other things like the Old Testament and the New Testament and mm-hmm. theology. And sadly, we're often even weaker in church history compared to other brothers and sisters in Christ in other portions of the Christian world. But, you know, if if we're weak in church history, I'd have to say our knowledge of intertestamental history, mm. what happened during those 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's sort of like a black hole. Mm. I mean, we know almost nothing about a time that is so vitally important, Jimmy, and let me tell you why. It's the time in which God was working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. He was working all things together for good to those who love him, Romans 8.28. He was working all those things to bring history to a point to the fullness of time mm-hmm. when he would send forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, into that world that he was overseeing through those 400 silent years, a world that has implications that reverberate well into the New Testament church era, so that when Jesus did come, all the world, all the people, Luke 3.15 tells us, were in expectation. Mm. And that's why it's so important for us to know about the events behind Hanukkah and this time of the intertestamental period. Wow, that is fantastic, Paul, and I, I love it. First of all, we're talking about, you know, those pages in our Bible, and a lot of times People don't understand this, but it's the pages from where Malachi ends and Matthew begins. And (laughs) that's the black hole that you're talking about, 400 years. I love that verse that you use. Christ was brought forth in the fullness of time. That's Galatians 4.4. And as you look at that, I mean, I love to teach that at Capernaum when we go there, that God had a, a, a plan to bring his story, history, into fruition, to bring it about. And uh, I love that. So is Hanukkah important for Christians? It, it absolutely is, Jimmy, just for all those reasons that I've listed and more, because Hanukkah happened in the 160s. The events behind the celebration of Hanukkah, mm-hmm. we should clarify, happened in the 160s before Christ. And that's in this intertestamental period, and it's such a pivotal, important time. It's a watershed moment in the history of the Jewish people. It will absolutely uh, set in motion things that will last well into the times of the New Testament, into the life of Christ. As uh, Chris Katalka, our speaker on our Friends of Israel Today radio program, said last year in discussing Hanukkah, he said if, you know, there wouldn't be a Christmas without Hanukkah. Mm. And that's, that's so important. And yet, uh, Jimmy, sometimes people say, well, boy, should we really be bringing Hanukkah into the church? Should we really, as Christians, be thinking about Hanukkah? And I say, well, there's Hanukkah in the Old Testament, there's Hanukkah in the New Testament, there's Hanukkah in the prophetic future. So maybe we should be talking about Hanukkah. Paul, that's so important, and that's why I had you on the program today, so that we could know why Hanukkah is important. Paul, is Hanukkah found in the Bible, and where is it? Well, Jimmy, of course, as we're saying, Hanukkah, the events behind Hanukkah happen in the intertestamental period, in those silent years. But here's the amazing thing. They're prophesied to occur in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verses 9 through 14. 
and the inspired interpretation of Daniel's vision later in that chapter, verses 23 through 26, also Daniel 11, 21 through 35, these deal with a leader named Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a type of the future Antichrist. And Daniel's revelation, his prophetic predictions about this man and what would happen, the events that are the basis for the celebration of Hanukkah, are so precise that, of course, critical scholars say Daniel could not have written it ahead of time as predictive prophecy. It had to be a a late forgery written after the fact, because it's so accurate, it's so complete in its detail of these events that would lead up to the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. Wow, good stuff, Paul. And we're going to continue on. Uh, Hanukkah does begin later on in the month. Exactly on what date, Paul? December 18 to 26 this year, Jimmy. Just perfect timing and plenty of time for our listeners to prepare to reach out to a Jewish friend during this season. It sure is. Well, we're going to study it, and next week we're going to pick up. We're going to talk about not only why it appears in Daniel, how does the Old Testament speak about Hanukkah, how does the Old Testament relate to Bible prophecy, and how we approach our Jewish friends about Hanukkah. How should we approach our Jewish friends about Hanukkah? And we'll cover that next week. Paul, thank you so much for being with us today, for starting to whet our appetite. And of course, right before Hanukkah, our friend Steve Herzig with Friends of Israel, your friend, your co-worker, will be with us on the radio to talk about Hanukkah and the Jewish culture of it. But as we're looking at it, we're helping the body of Christ to understand and to start that process which we already started, really, (laughs) at Thanksgiving. We started celebrating Christmas even before Thanksgiving now, but it is important to start thinking about Hanukkah also and how we can reach out to others that uh, look at Hanukkah as important to their lives and then how we can relate that to Jesus Christ. Paul, thank you so much. Uh, How do they find you if they're looking forward to you? Well, Jimmy, they can find all of my materials for our ministry with the Friends of Israel at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf, P-S-C-H-A-R-F. In particular there, they can find an article I wrote last year called The Hanukkah Hang-Up. How do we get past this idea that Christians don't need to know about Hanukkah? And let me give you a clue, uh, Jimmy, for all of our listeners of uh, something that hopefully we can cover to some degree or other. Guess what? Jesus celebrated Hanukkah Mm. in John chapter 10. So... (laughs) So we need to get past that Hanukkah hang-up, and people can find my article on that at sermonaudio.com slash psharf. Excellent, Paul. Thank you so much for joining with us this week. Thank you, Jimmy. It's always a joy. Mike Gendron joins us today. He's a good friend of the program. He's been on quite often. He is the head of Proclaiming the Gospel Ministries, former Catholic who now teaches basically on sound Bible doctrine. Mike, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's always good to be with you. Well, Mike, I'd like to talk to you about an article that you wrote, and the article is entitled, Antithetical Doctrines Provide Gospel Clarity. Can you tell us what that article means? Well, sure. It's important as we witness that we share the statements that we make in an antithetical form, and of course, we emulate the apostles as they wrote many antithetical statements in the New Testament when it came to the gospel. And I think a classic example is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Paul 
writes there that we are saved by grace apart from works. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. And so he not only shares how we are saved, but then what opposes the grace of God and salvation, and that's human effort or human merit or even human works. And so, as you know, my major concern, my major focus as far as evangelizing is the 1.3 billion Roman Catholics in the world. And every Roman Catholic that you talk to would say that they are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But the reason the Reformation was so important is because the Reformers recognized the importance of the word alone, that we are saved by grace apart from merit, by faith apart from works, through faith in Christ apart from any other mediator. And, of course, we find all the truth from the Bible alone, not from any Roman Catholic source other than the Bible. And so it's important, I think, as we share the gospel to present the truth right alongside what is false. Now, I know certainly that is at the heart of your ministry, Mike. And so when you're looking at that, and this is just uh, something that our listeners can kind of put in their toolbox when they're talking to their Catholic friends, can you tell us how potentially you might use some of these statements uh, in a conversation, kind of a, a gospel conversation with, uh, with these people? Well, sure. I think first and foremost, though, we can see all the antithetical parallels in the Bible. We see Christ and any Christ. We see the advocate, and we also see the Lord's adversary. We also see a contrast between believers and unbelievers, between eternal life and eternal death, light and darkness, justification and condemnation. We see a contrast between truth and error. And so when you look at sharing the gospel, I think another classic verse would be Romans 6.23, because here Paul describes death versus life and man's wages versus God's gift. He says, uh, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in this verse, wages is contrasted with gift and death with eternal life. So these are powerful antithetical words that are direct opposites of one another. God's free gift of grace is not something anyone can earn or a wage to be earned through our works. Instead, Paul presents man as effecting his own death by wages of sin. And so I think as we share the gospel, we can never be too clear. We know that the adversary is out there trying to compromise the truth, and he does that very subtly with a uh, half-truth, and he um, has a thin veneer of truth around the Roman Catholic false and fatal gospel. Oh, Mike, another thing that I would like to talk about, you, you know, one of the things that you wrote in your article, John fourteen six, Jesus is the only way to the Father in the heaven. And this is different from the Catholic Church's false doctrine that says there are many ways, correct? Well, you're right. In fact, in paragraph 841 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it declares that Muslims are part of God's plan of salvation, according to the Catholic Church. And so this is really troubling, Rick, because Muslims reject Jesus as God. They also deny that he died on the cross. And so how can they be part of God's plan of salvation? And this same religion, the Catholic religion, condemns born-again Christians because we believe that Christ is sufficient, that his work was finished, and that he is the only way to the Father. So it's very troubling when you look at Roman Catholicism. They present a false Christ, and 
that's just one of many ways that the Catholic Church presents a counterfeit Christ in their teaching. And then the summary or the finish of this article, you talk about the final antithetical declaration, the end of times when the Good Shepherd will divide the sheep from the goats. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. In the end, the uh, Lord will return and he will divide the human race into two groups throughout all eternity. One group will enter into the joy of eternal life with their Savior, and the other group will depart into eternal punishment and the fires of hell. And so more than ever, this should motivate all of us with a sense of urgency to lovingly confront people with the truth of the gospel. People will never know they're deceived until they're confronted with the truth. And so, Rick, that's what I'm thankful for about your program. You present the truth. And there are a lot of people outside of your listening audience that have never heard the truth. And so we need to take the truth to those who are deceived so they can be confronted and know that they have been deceived, and then they can repent and believe the truth found in the gospel. Mike, it's excellent to hear this scripture juxtaposed against Catholic teaching, but just false teaching in general. Well, we certainly do appreciate your effort to put out doctrine, correct doctrine. Could you tell us, uh, our listeners, where they could go to find out a little bit more about your ministry and a little bit more about this concept? Well, sure. Um, our ministry website is proclaimingthegospel.org. Just give us a call at 817-379-5300, and we'll send that out to you. Wow, what a great half hour. Gershon Solomon, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, an interview that took place in 2016, the history of uh, that retaking of the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. Of course, Hanukkah. Paul Scharf talking about that. We'll be talking about it all month. And Mike Gendron on the program today. We've got to take a break. And when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy Dion, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, it's December, and you know what that means, don't you? That's right, Jimmy. We are looking towards Christmas, and this is our commemoration of what we consider, and I know most of our listeners do as well, the most important event in all of history, the coming of God-man, Jesus Christ, to the earth. And we talk about that at this time of the year. We remember that time. And, Jimmy, you know, we have Bethlehem Beyond the Christmas Story. We go in-depth as we look at the Christmas story, the arrival of Jesus to the earth. And you can get that at our website at prophecytoday.com. You can order it there, and it is a great gift to give away at Christmas. Well, Rick, as we begin our study in this month in which we celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ, which of course is the Christmas story, Dr. DeYoung will spend some time looking at some of the interesting facts and details related to the Christmas story. This is a special time of the year. We love this time of the year, as many others do as well. So we're going to spend some time looking at all the details surrounding the first coming of Jesus Christ, which basically sets the stage for the second coming as well. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. As we begin our Bible study this month, I thought it would be very interesting to focus on the season in which we are living. This is one of the greatest times of the year for many of us. I love the Christmas season. Well, we want to spend a couple of weeks looking at some very interesting facts, some details related to the Christmas story. 
For example, this time we're going to look at how John the Baptist has a real connection to the Christmas story. This will amaze you as we consider the prophetic word of God as it relates to the coming not only of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but to the forerunner. That would be John the Baptist had the Jewish people believed. More on that in just a few moments. By the way, we're going to talk next time we get together about how did we get the 25th day of December to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Is it a possibility that Christ could have been born in the wintertime there in the shepherd's fields just outside of Bethlehem? Many have questioned the possibility of those little shepherd boys watching over those sheep at night during those cold winter nights in Bethlehem in December, and many have speculated that it was probably sometime in the summer that Jesus Christ was born. Well, we'll look at the December 25th date and how that came about. It was the early church fathers who decided on that date, and I'll tell you why. And there's an interesting connection with Jesus Christ as it relates to that date as well. And then we'll further look into the fact, could it have been in the wintertime? And what about those shepherds? Were they really little 14 or 15-year-old boys there in the fields outside of Bethlehem? Or were they grown men? And if they were grown men, why did they have to be grown men? Well, we'll look into that as well. Some of the details, some of the facts surrounding the Christmas story. And finally, on Christmas Eve, we'll spend some time studying the Word of God to determine exactly the location of where Christ was born. And why was it that when the angels said, this will be a sign unto you, these shepherds went with haste to the exact place where Jesus Christ would be born. And in fact, if you had studied the Old Testament, it was not only Bethlehem that was significant, but it was a special place in Bethlehem that the Messiah had to be born. You know, it's very interesting that in the Bible, there are only 168 verses that deal with the birth of Jesus Christ. That's found in four chapters of the Bible, Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and Luke chapters 1 and 2, 168 verses, not a lot of space allotted to the birth, the most magnificent birth in all of history, the birth, the coming of the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to start our study today in the book of Luke, chapter 1 and verse 5. Zacharias, who would be the father of John the Baptist, who we're going to focus on in our study, was a priest serving in the temple. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, we see that in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, now that means it had to be around 4 B.C. Remember, Herod died in 4 B.C. Jesus Christ was born before Herod died, and, and so we're talking about 4 B.C., the birth date of Jesus Christ, almost 2,000 years ago. But in the days of Herod, there was a priest, a certain priest called Zacharias. And notice in verse 5, it says, He was of the course of Abia, and his wife was a daughter of Aaron. That means she was a part of the priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi. Her name was Elizabeth. But by the way, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. In other words, they were an older couple. And Zacharias went to serve at the temple, and he had the unique privilege of being selected by lot, by the casting of the lot, to be the one who would take the incense and pour them on the altar of incense. 
Now this altar of incense would be right before the veil of the temple, and Zacharias would go and get some hot coals, put them on the altar of incense, and then come and very gently allow these incense to fall from his hands onto the burning coals, which would then send smoke up through the 21-story high building, out the hole in the roof, and towards the heavenlies. This was symbolic of the prayers being offered up by the Jewish people. However, while that was happening, the angel Gabriel, an archangel, appeared to Zacharias, and he gave Zacharias a prophecy, a prophecy that he and Elizabeth were going to have a son, they were to call him John, and he would be the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, Zacharias was taken back by this. You know, he really did not think that was possible since his wife had been barren all of her life. He didn't think that at her age she'd be able to have a child. Well, because of his unbelief, the angel Gabriel made Zacharias dumb. Not dumb, stupid, but dumb, can't talk. And in fact, the angel said, you'll not be able to talk until the eighth day in the life of your son when you bring him to the temple for his circumcision. Zacharias finished his priestly responsibilities, the text tells us, as you read chapter 1 of the book of Luke. And in verse 33 it says, And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his administration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. Now remember, he lived in, in Kerem, which is out to the west of the Temple Mount, about seven miles. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she was ready to bring forth a child in fulfillment of what the angel Gabriel had told Zacharias would happen. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57, gives us the record of the birth of this son who would be a cousin to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but would have a very unique role in the ministry of God-man here on the earth. After John was born on the eighth day, his mother and father, Zacharias and Elizabeth, brought him to the temple, as was the custom, for the circumcision service that would take place. And at that point in time, the mouth of Zacharias the priest was loosed, and he spoke and he praised God. But in addition to praising God, he gave a prophecy about what would happen. Verse 76, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. What a prophecy. Here was John to be the forerunner for his cousin Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God-man, Emmanuel, coming to earth. You know, there is an Old Testament prophecy that foretold there would be a forerunner to the Messiah, and in fact the one spoken of, a prophet by the name of Elijah, had to appear and be the forerunner for the Messiah Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ would have not been the Messiah. I'm referring to the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, where it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's a prophecy that indeed could have been fulfilled in John the Baptist. And I make that statement based upon what Jesus Christ said. In Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 11, Jesus said unto all those listening to him teach, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, 
there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. That's verse 11. Verse 14 says, And if you will receive him, this is Elijah, which was for to come. Indeed, John the Baptist, according to the words of Jesus Christ, could have been the forerunner called for by the ancient Jewish prophets. However, the Jewish people not only rejected John the Baptist, they rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ, as well. But that prophecy will be fulfilled in the future. John the Baptist had to be involved in the ministry of Jesus Christ at the first coming. John, the cousin of Jesus, would play a key role in the Christmas story. One of the unique prophecies of the first coming, of which there are over 300. That is unique in itself, that one man, Jesus Christ, fulfilled over 300 prophecies about the man who would come to be the Messiah. And of course, those prophecies were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Had the Jews believed, John the Baptist could have been the Elijah of Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. But that means Elijah still must come. There's a song that's very popular. We're living in the days of Elijah. I believe as you look at the prophecies surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ, we have the evidence that we're quickly approaching the time when Elijah will appear before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. You see, at the first coming, Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the prophecies that foretold a Messiah would come to the earth. Now that's key, because that gives us then a foundation upon which we can have assurance that all of those prophecies yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled just exactly like they were given in absolute detail. Remember, John the Baptist was the one to be the forerunner at the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Elijah will fulfill that second coming prophecy. He will come on the scene before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We're speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as you look at the scenario that's going to unfold in the end times, as we're thinking about the Christmas story and how all of those prophecies were fulfilled, remember there are five times as many prophecies about the second coming of Christ, and those have to be fulfilled in absolute detail as well. But again, I remind you, the fulfillment by Jesus Christ of all the prophecies focusing on the first coming give us the evidence that the second coming will happen exactly like the Bible tells us it will take place. In chapter 4 and verse 1 of Revelation, it talks about an event that will happen before the tribulation period and the return of Christ will take place. And that is the rapture of the church. When Jesus shouts, the archangel shouts and the trump of God sounds and we're caught up to be with him in the air forevermore. You know, as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ, it gives us solid evidence that the prophecies for the second coming will be fulfilled as well. And I do believe as we look at all that's happening in our world today and compare it to Bible prophecy, those prophecies for the second coming could be fulfilled in the very near future. As I said several times in our study today, that first coming of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of all of the prophecies surrounding the birth of God-man, Emmanuel, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, all of those prophecies were fulfilled in the absolute detail that they were given by the ancient Jewish prophets. 
there are five times as many prophecies about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the Christmas story, which is a record of the fulfillment of all of those prophecies surrounding the first coming of Christ, give us a foundation upon which we then can be assured that the second coming will happen just exactly as he has told us. This should cause all of us to consider the claims of Jesus Christ, who said he was the Messiah, and through him we could have a relationship with his Father, and not only for now, but forever. Next week on the broadcast, we're going to discuss the issue of the date that we celebrate the birth of Christ, December the 25th. I think this will be of great interest to you. Thank you, Dr. DeYoung, for that teaching. I'm sure we'll be looking forward to next week when we study and understand why we use December 25th as the date for the birth of Jesus Christ. Remember, if you'd like to get the DVD, Bethlehem, A Christmas Story, you can get that at our website at prophecytoday.com. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will wrap up the program by taking a look at the book and rehearsing what we talked about today on the program. That's all ahead, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The Chinese government warns it'll crack down on nationwide protests. Jason Wolford says while communicating with Mission Cry partners in China, they use code in case the government's listening in. Amid threats of limiting the Internet, hard copy Bibles are becoming more important than ever. Mission Cry recently sent a container full of repurposed Bibles and Christian books to Hong Kong. Find your place in this story at missionnews.org. And World Missionary Press celebrates a new ministry partner in Kenya. We're not naming the partner for security purposes. But WMP's Helen Williams says they work in a desperate environment. Some might call the people who live here a waste of life. But World Missionary Press partners see this community and its people as their calling. Believers offer humanitarian aid and services to people throughout the slum. Scripture booklets from WMP introduce the gospel message. More at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ms. Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is the time of the program where we really look back at our program today. We're going to wrap it all up. And Rick, as we think about that, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, looking back at the interview between Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Gershon Solomon, 
Paul Scharf talking about Hanukkah this time of the year, why it's important to Christians, and then Mike Gendron bringing up the topics that he talked about on the program today. What were some of the things that stood out to you? Well, Jimmy, as we begin this month of December and we are looking at China, we're looking at Russia, we're looking at Iran, all nations that are going to be involved in the end times. (laughs) Yes, they are. And there's unrest in those countries. Uh, There are protests in China. There are protests in Iran. I thought it was interesting that uh, Vladimir Putin is now talking about how he could possibly come to the table for some sort of agreement on the situation in Ukraine. And I thought you made some very important uh, points with Ken, and I think Ken really has a good handle on what is taking place. And as we watch the events in Europe and geopolitical, it does help us to understand that we are getting close to those days. Well, we talk about them often. We're living in the end times and we're watching events take place. We certainly are. And Dave Dolan brought up several interesting stories, but one of the most exciting stories is he was talking about uh, the focus on the Temple Mount with this new government that's being formed and these new uh, people or politicians that are going to be involved in this government, there's going to be a real focus on the Temple Mount, which is certainly going to be something that is going to be a focus of the world going forward. You know, I have mentioned several times over the, in fact, I was looking back the other day on uh, articles and, and some stories that we have done. We've continued to focus on it. Uh, the two-state solution of two Jewish states, not a Jewish and an Arab state, but two Jewish states, And as we look at uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu setting up his government and um, uh, really bringing in the religious aspect of it, so many people don't like it. Well, part of the country does, part of the country doesn't like the government that is being set up. So I think that you, you definitely are seeing the government that is being set up trying to use the religious aspect, which is gaining input and really controlling the country. In fact, I think we're going to see something like this happen in Israel, which could be, uh, again, the beginning and the setting up of a two-state solution. You look at all of these events put together, Jimmy, and geopolitical events, and we look at things that are happening all over Europe, Russia, China, Iran, and the Far East. And then, you know, we certainly focus on Israel and what's taking place in the Middle East. It certainly looks like the stage is being set. Things are be, uh, being put into place that are, are setting forth events that are going to happen in the future. Yes. You know, today we focused on Gershon Solomon and his passing. And uh, we played a, a, an old interview. I hope you enjoyed that because I, I know I did, Rick. I know you did. Uh, Gershon telling the story of, you know, how he was one of the first men there onto the Temple Mount, 1967, in the reunification. A divided city became a unified city in 1967, Six-Day War. Gershon Solomon actually gave me chills when he talked about being in there. And Rabbi Shlomo Gorn, General Rabbi Shlomo Gorn, who later became the chief rabbi of Israel, blew the shofar inside the Dome of the Rock. I mean, you and I have been there so many times. We've been on the Temple Mount. Um, Mm. Again, that's uh, the third most holiest site in Islam. The number one, the first holiest site to the Jewish people where the future temples will stand. Kershon 
talked about that and his um, putting together the Temple Mount Faithful, what he felt God had given him a role to do. And I believe he gave our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, a role in that period of time when he saw this, decided to bring the attention to the United States. And one of our most sold DVDs is Ready to Rebuild. And of course, the updated version, Ready to Rebuild, Revisited, where we focus on the next temple that will stand during the tribulation period. We talked to Paul Scharf about Hanukkah, why it's important to Christians. We're going to focus on that all month long because Jesus not only celebrated Hanukkah, but draw the connection between the birth of Jesus Christ and when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But Rick, remember when we go to Capernaum and we talk about Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I really loved how Paul Scharf brought that to the table. There was a time period predicted by Daniel exactly when Jesus would be in the city of Jerusalem to be crucified, but he had to be born. And as you said earlier on, that is one of the most important events in history. If Christ had not come the first time, he couldn't come the second time, correct? That's right, Jimmy. And as we look at these events, I mean, you put them all together. They're forming a story. They're forming a narrative. Uh, We look at Christ's first coming, and it all points towards Christ's second coming, and that's what we are all about on this program is looking at this progression of events that's taking place that is setting the stage for prophecy to be fulfilled. Yes. You know, when you look at the the time period of Christ's coming and the fullness of time, there was a great anticipation among the Jews of that time that the Messiah would come. The Roman rule over Israel had made the Jews hungry for the Messiah's coming. The times of the Gentiles now are making the Jews looking forward to the coming of a Messiah. They're even uh, are celebrating that the Messiah is already here. But if they read the book of Daniel, the Messiah already had to be here and had to be cut off or to be crucified. So, you know, as the Jews today are anticipating the Messiah, we look at that and we focus on it sometimes because it helps us to understand that they are mentally and spiritually prepared for that time when there will be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit to the Jewish people. Rick, it's the month of December. I hope you're getting ready for Christmas. Uh, not just the giving of gifts as we always do, but as we are looking forward to the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. I am, Jimmy, looking forward to this time of Christmas and remembering the reason for the season. Folks, we're going to see you next week where we'll continue our conversation on Hanukkah. We'll continue looking at and examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And really, everything that we see every single day is leading us to the conclusion that the rapture of the church cannot be far away. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.